Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Troubadour podcast. My name is Kirk Barbera. I am the editor-in-chief of the Troubadour magazine. And today we're going to talk about The Catcher in the Rye by by, uh, J.D. Salinger, written in 1951. Now, one of the arguments, I'm going to set this up at the beginning of something I think that I am bringing that's a little different to the interpretation of this novel. And one of the, the... things I want to focus on is the style. So when you read, if you read any interpretations or analysis or spark notes or whatever for J.D. Salinger's book, The Catcher on the Rye, one of the main things you'll see commonly is the loss of innocence. I'm going to be making an argument that the core issue of this book is actually the same issue that's leading to an onslaught of conspiracy theorists today. That's a hell of a statement. Um, And I'm going to try to provide a couple of arguments and it's not going to be a full thesis or full, um, you know, analysis of everything, but I just want to make a couple points and uh, put it out there. If anybody's interested in thinking about this, that I think that what's going on with this novel and novels of its ilk is something that actually leads heavily into the kind of mentality that is ripe with, you know, I'm I'm recording this in 2021. This is the beginning of March 2021, as we're still in a pandemic, but there are still people who believe that the whole, um, you know, uh, COVID-19 is completely a myth or it's no different than the flu. They think that it's all exaggerated or made up and there's some big conspiracy there are the QAnon type people. There are the people who still believe that um, Trump actually won the 2020 election when it was clearly Biden and all of the courts in the land, um, you know, that that weighed on this measure on this issue, voted or said that this is who the winner was and it, he was elected by a body of Americans, so on and so forth. And there are lots of conspiracy. I mean, there are people today who literally don't believe that the earth is round, right? We live in that kind of bizarre, bizarro land. And it's always struck me as, you know, this is a growing phenomenon and maybe it's only growing because of social media, but we get now a close look at their mentality, at their string of uh, what I would call stream of consciousness, quote unquote, scare quote thinking, or it's really not thinking it's stream of consciousness. And that's what we're going to talk about. So that that's what I wanted to really express. And before you turn me off for a second, I want to make an argument real quick at the outset of this is a really valuable, valuable, so important part of why you should read literature, even if you don't necessarily like it, even if it's not the most inspiring thing, even if it doesn't uplift you, even if it doesn't help you live the better life, because it helps you understand the world. This is a great example. Catcher on the Rye is a great example of a type of intellectual thinking, of a type of um, integration or lack of integration in the mind of a human being, uh, Holden Caulfield, that we see from page one all the way to page, whatever the end of the page, I don't know, 180, 200 pages. It's not a super long, uh, 260 some odd pages. From page one to the end, we get that sense. And, and I want to kind of flesh this out of, or we get a sense of a certain kind of thinker, of a certain kind of mind, and he's not stupid necessarily. It's not 
you know, the, the mind of a mentally handicapped individual. This is someone who goes to a good prep school. He's considered to be bright in certain sense, even though he's failing out of the prep school. Um, but he's, you know, why he's failing out is part of the question because it you know, becomes clear that he's not dumb. He knows things and he seems to be able to, you know, capable on some occasions to make connections. So some teachers even think very highly of him, especially his English teacher from another school. So, the, but the point is that the, the style of this book is really important. It, even if it doesn't uplift you, cause it won't uplift you. It's, you know, it begins where it seems to be clear that he's in some kind of mental institution in a sanitarium of some sort in the 1950s, and he's recovering from some psychosis, and he's writing down his story of this one weekend, essentially, after he learns that he's been expelled from um, a prep school, and he goes to New York City, has these quote-unquote adventures, and uh, but not really adventures, it's just random occurrences that happen here and there. And so everything is very random. And and but the, the point I wanted to make in this whole section at the beginning here is that you don't have to like Catcher in the Rye in order to make it a really critical read to understanding a whole psychosis, a whole psychology that is taking over our world in a sense, or at least it's becoming very, very prevalent among many, many people. And it may even be prevalent with you on occasion. And the only way to know that is to read it, to see it for yourself so you can analyze it, assess it, contemplate it. This is one of the deep values of literature that isn't necessarily grand, epic, plot-driven, and things of that nature. Okay, so um, I just wanted to make that argument because I often run into people who will not read anything other than a couple prescribed types of novels uh, because they don't think there's any value of it. There's in, I'm going to be keeping. I'm going to keep making arguments that there is intense value to reading this book, even though it is not very uh, enlightening or, or uh, I should say not enlightening, um, uplifting or enjoyable in certain sense. Sometimes it's quite nasty and, and it's sad and, and tragic to enter into the psychology of J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield. Now, to get us started, I want to kind of give you two. For, this is from The Dim Hypothesis by Dr. Leonard Peikoff. I highly recommend this. This book is about... Uh, a scary word called epistemology, which is basically how we know things, how we come to understand the world, how we come to know. Uh, just to give you an example, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a philosopher on Facebook, and I, um, where he corrected me about something regarding viruses, and I had have been having a conversation with someone where I said, um, you know, they had said something about the COVID-19 virus is asymptomatic, which, you know, or, or asymptomatic spreaders are a big part of the, the problem. And I, I know that that is very true. And I said, well, that's always been true of viruses. And my friend, who's very intelligent, well-read well person and a philosopher, said, well, that's not always been true of viruses or not of all viruses. And then I said, well, that's interesting. Um, and I agree with you. And that's a good point I need to learn more about. But what I came to realize is that I had always believed that that was knowledge without any real concrete evidence. I just, it was just something I'd believed more. And it was something that I had passed off as knowledge. And, and that's one problem of, you know, knowledge is I had passed it on and thought of it as knowledge. I thought it was knowledge, but it was, it's not true that every single virus, every single type of, or at least, you know, I'm gonna have to investigate this myself, but um, according to my philosopher friend, 
that that's not necessarily true. So anyway, the point is that there's lots of ways that you can gather, gather knowledge and get information about the world. In this case, information about COVID-19 or other or viruses in general as, as a category. There's ways of doing that and there's ways of doing it well. There's ways of doing it decently. There's ways of doing it passing. There's ways of doing it poorly. And there's ways of just completely boggling the whole mess uh, or boggling the whole attempt. Now, I want to um, read from, the, again, the dim hypothesis, which is about uh, heavily about epistemology, where he talks about something that I think is very relevant to uh, J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. And it's something he calls juxtaposition. So this is one form of integrating knowledge, of thinking about, of, get, of uh, putting together information to acquire and to understand knowledge. So one way the Greeks put it, for instance, the ideal, according to Dr. Leonard Peikoff, and I agree, for acquiring knowledge or for understanding the world is to find what the Greeks called the one and the many. And the one and the many is, you know, if, if you think of, you know, what do dogs and cats have in common? Well, the one in the many would be animals. They're both animals, even though they're two really different types of animals, but they're both under the category of animals. And that is essentially uh, the one and the many, right? What does a chair and a table have in common? They're furniture. And so what the Greeks uh, brought into existence is finding that kind of what is the one in the many. And that is what knowledge is, is making integrations. But there are lots of ways that integrations can go wrong, especially as you get higher and higher into it. Um, now, the term juxtaposition is one way that it can go wrong. And in fact, it's um, according to Peikoff, it's the opposite of what he's talking about. It's, it's the closest to the opposite of what he's talking about, which is um, in terms of he believes the essence of good thinking is integration. So he says to denote the opposite of integration, many words could be chosen. But the, the best, I think, is juxtaposition. That is the mere conjunction putting together of objects in space and or time. For example, on, on the simple physical level, Hiroshima after the atom bomb was no longer a whole because there was no longer a purposeful connection uniting the remains of Hiroshima. And I'm adding a little of my own ad lib to this, by the way. Um, but only sprawling chunks of glass, random puddles, and scattered flesh. At most, one could say that there was a juxtaposition of lesser holes, doorknobs, bodies, etc., so juxtaposition, like integration, is possible at every stage of mental development. So he goes on, and if you want, I recommend this book highly. It's really interesting. Um, it's about why the, the lights of the West are going out. And it was written, I think, in 2012 and in 2021. Um, pff, man, it's coming more and more true. Um, this is, you know, this this is a, 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 no, or a, a book that actually tries to predict the future. And I think it succeeds so far. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it will not fully succeed though, because it's pretty dim. Dun dun dun. Okay, here's the last part I want to read about this to kind of give us a sense of my approach to the catcher in the rye. He Leonard Peikoff talks about integration of actions. So integration of our actions to create meaning in our life is one thing that you can do with your mind. You can look back or forward with your mind and think about the kinds of actions you want to take 
to pursue the kinds of values like a career, you know, as a writer or as a um, a CPA or a plumber or whatever it is that you want to be or a detective and move forward in that, you know, by taking certain actions to make that happen. Or, you know, love is another one. If you want, like, what actions do you want to take to find love? Sitting on the couch is probably not the best way to, you know, the best action to take for finding love. Um, but he talks about, again, with juxtaposition and how this doesn't happen for most people's lives. And he says, more commonly, however, a non-whole product stems from a non-whole course of action. One based not on purpose or plan, but on whim. A college student, say, goes to a movie. He's bored. Makes a pass at a waitress. Aroused. Takes a nap in the park. Tired. Smokes a joint. Restless. Flies to Buffalo. Misses his friends. These episodes being devoid of connection do not comprise a whole W-H-O-L-E, whole, an entirety, but merely a temporal succession, a form of juxtaposition. This remains true even if the young man claims to have created a whole new kind of, or a new kind of whole, as proved by the fact that all the episodes can be covered by two words, such as my choices or my day. If a man's actions and or products reflect either his failure to integrate or his successful removal of integration, then what he does or makes, even if nameable by a single word, cannot be described as a new integration, just as the absence or destruction of achievement cannot be described as a new form of creativity. A connection among elements does not consist in the absence or removal of connection. Non-connection is not a species of connection. So um, this is a rather complex book on epistemology, and I don't, I'm not an expert on epistemology, so I don't want to explain my, or to attempt my best to explain it all. I recommend reading it for yourself and trying to understand it for yourself. But what I will say is that that description, particularly of the college boy's day, is 1,000% an accurate portrayal of the plot of Catcher in the Rye. I don't care who you are or your reading of it, that is a true statement about Catcher in the Rye. That is what motivates Holden Caulfield, is it's a random attempt at whims. He, um, you know, he, he feels like going, he gets fired or kicked out of prep school, so he feels like going to the only teacher he he uh, kind of likes, he doesn't really like the teacher, he thinks he's phony, so he leaves. He doesn't know what to do next, So, and he runs into randomly one of his um, roommates, and he finds out that his roommate's going to go on a date, and he finds out that he's going on a date um, with a girl that Holden used to like, and he feels upset, so he goes to talk to another person. But this is never a clear progression of any kind of actions. This is just random ping-ponging of things that happen. Um, his friend comes back, the, the roommate comes back, and he asks him to write a English paper for him because this is the only thing that Holden seems to be good at. Holden writes an a English paper that has nothing to do with what he's supposed to really be writing. And um, it's actually about, it's really just about Holden's brother who passed away several years earlier and about a, a baseball glove that he had, um, I think, given to him or or something about the baseball glove. But 
That's what the, and then the, the roommate comes back. He says, this is crap. This has nothing to do with what I'm trying to do. And it's not going to help me. And then Holden wants to, you know, uh, is mad, but he doesn't know why he's mad. It's probably because he wants to know if the roommate had sex with the girl, the, you know, the, the girl that Holden used to like and, or does like and so on and so forth. And, and then he, he, they get in a fist fight. Holden leaves for New York. He goes to a bar. He leaves the bar. Calls a friend because he doesn't know what else to do and he's bored. He gets it in his mind to call a girlfriend. He gets it in his mind to go get some more drinks. He gets it in his mind to have breakfast. For some reason, he gives all or a lot of his money to a bunch of nuns. Um, in you know now, uh, and then he he call, goes to go see his little sister. Um, he he sneaks into his house. He sneaks out of, and it's just a whole bunch of random whimful things of he doesn't know where he's going, and so that's. So he just ends up going wherever feeling in the world and some chance occurrence, some kid sings a song on the street and it reminds him of a song and that makes him want to go see his sister and so on and so forth. So that's essentially the plot of The Catcher in the Rye. It's just a string of random whimful occurrences that this young man goes through. Uh, Holden Caulfield is the main character. It's all in first person, so it's all through his eyes, or you know, it's him writing it from a sanitarium, a mental institution. Okay, now the really fascinating thing for me, and what I think is very powerful in a not a good way, is the style of thinking that this individual goes through. <clears throat> And I just want to read the, I'm going to read the beginning and I'm going to read a couple other passages for you to get, kind of get a sense for this. Now, the only way to really understand this story is to read it for yourself. Because again, it's the plot, I think is not the most, not that very important part of what's going on. It's more the style and just the, the things that this character sees. So here's the opening. It's a somewhat famous opening, I think. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it. If you want to know the truth, if you want to know the truth, in the first place, that stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything pretty personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all, I'm not saying that, but they're also touchy as hell. Besides, I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn autobiography or anything. I'll just tell you about this madman stuff that happened to me around last Christmas, just before I got pretty run down and had to come out here and take it easy. I mean, that's all I told DB about, and, well, he's my brother and all. He's in Hollywood. That isn't too far from this crummy place. And he comes over and visits me practically every week, every weekend. He's going to drive me home um, when I go home next month, maybe. He just got a Jaguar, one of those little English jobs that can do around 200 miles an hour. It cost him damn near 4000 bucks. He's got a lot of dough now. He didn't used to. He used to be just a regular writer when he was home. He wrote this terrific book of short stories, The Secret Goldfish, in case you never heard of him. The best one of it was... This, so it goes on and on like that. And, um, where, and then he later eventually gets to the point of, where I want to start telling is the day I left Pensy Prep. And what you get constantly is that kind of teetering off in his mentality where he, one random uh, thought 
leads to something else, leads to something else. And then he gets back to the point that he's trying to get across. Now, this is actually pointed out um, to him later when he goes to see his old English professor's uh, English teacher later in the story. And he says the one thing in English class. So let me break this down. He goes Holden um, after he visits his sister later on in the weekend, after he's been kicked out of the prep school, he goes to New York city. He stays in a hotel. He does these adventures of bars, trying to pick up women, you know, as a 16 year old, he's trying to pick up like women in their twenties. Um, and he just goes random places. He eventually makes it to his sister. And then after his sister, he goes to his English, uh, an old English teacher from another prep school, not the one he got kicked out of. That English teacher liked him because he was, Holden was good in English. That seems to be the only thing that he has any kind of talent in. So the English teacher asks him, well, I hope, I, I, I hear you got kicked out of prep school. I hope you at least better well damn have done well good in English. And Holden says, oh, you know I did good in English, of course, so on and so forth. He said, the only class or the only assignment or part of English that I did not do good in was the extemporaneous speaking in class. The way they do this, the way he describes it, is that you are called upon randomly and you have to describe something and the students will buzz or clap or hit the desk or something every time you get off topic. And Holden hates this because he is really bad at it. He cannot stay on topic. And his argument is that he likes the not the, the secondary things that, you know, uh, have nothing to do with what he's trying to talk about. And the English teacher says, well, isn't there times when it is helpful to be on topic and to stay on topic? And he says, well, I guess so. But I just like it. And then he g- goes off and starts talking about this other kid who also had troubles in it. And he hated how brutal everyone was in class to that kid. So. Again, I think what you see in his psychology is not just what critics focus on, which is that Holden Caulfield wants to protect everybody. And we'll talk about this in a second. But it's his inability to think, period. He has no ability to make um, causal connections because he's only making temporal connections or random whim connections. Whatever just happens to be in the environment, that's what he will go based on and he will he has no ability to ask logical questions to say does this fit into the category that i'm trying to think about you know if i'm trying to tell someone how to fix their car they don't need to know about what i had for breakfast yesterday but he doesn't seem to know that that's a problem in a lot of cases even in creative endeavors and i think jd salinger maybe you know this is the only book of jd salinger's i've read i don't know much about him maybe he except i think that he was reclusive and maybe he had that same feeling that it doesn't, you know, that it doesn't matter. Now, this whole stream, this whole um, type of book is called a stream of consciousness book. And that's how it comes across. And this is my first, um, I guess, big point that I think I can add to the criticism of this book is that it has a terrifying, terrifying ability to hijack your mind. I call it the Caulfield effect. That as you're reading it, because it's stream of consciousness and the way that it flows, 
it feel and it did this for me and you know maybe for better minds than mine it won't do this but it was terrifying how it felt like unlike any other book that i've ever read it felt as though the words that i was reading on the page as i was reading them you know i hear it in my head as i'm reading it it was the last game of the year and you were supposed to commit suicide or something if old pensy didn't win I remember around three o'clock that afternoon, I was standing away the hell up on the top of the Thompson Hill, right next to this crazy canoe, uh, cannon that was in the Revolutionary War and all, you know, that and all like the, the way that it's written in that stream of consciousness, it felt like it was taking over my mind. Like I had lost control of my mind and this had this book and the words on this book had tra- entranced me in a sense and taken over my mind. And one thing that it made me realize is that most people don't realize that the stuff that goes on in your head is not thinking. We, we tend to say that um, we're think like, hey, what are you doing? You're just sitting there looking up at you know the wall or you're just looking at nothing. You're just sitting quietly, not even having earbuds in right now. You're just sitting there. What are you doing? Is oh, I'm thinking. More than likely, it's not thinking that you're doing in your head. And this book is a really good example of helping to teach you that point, if you think about it correctly. And I don't think most people have. But what goes on in your head is not necessarily thinking. Thinking is a process of integration. It's a process of categorizing. It's saying, I saw this event and this occurrence and that occurrence. What do they have in common? What do they have that's different than other things that I've seen? How is it similar? You know, I'm always reminded of poetry as a form of thought process, as a form of actual thinking and integration, because it is a a comparison. What does a mind have in in common with a kingdom? Well, on the surface level, it doesn't really have anything when you don't think about it. But if you pause, you might say, well, if we don't mean brain, we mean mind. So we mean consciousness. So we mean the, the, the things that go on in our mind that we have a, a, you know, control over because we have free will. What, what does that have? Well, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom, it can be a whole pile, you know, area that, you know, think of like Troy or Rome or some, some kingdom where there's, there's a, a landed area. Maybe there's walls up and there's a king, right? And then there's, People that come into that kingdom and there's people that go out of that kingdom. There's people that bring goods into the kingdom. There are foreigners who come in to trade. There are maybe people who come in to threaten that kingdom. There's a whole bunch of things going on. And that's very similar. There's actually some thoughts about that with the mind. There's a lot of stuff that comes into your mind. There's a lot of stuff that goes out of your mind, right? You forget stuff. And there's stuff that new stuff that comes in. Maybe some um, news channel pundit has a big effect on your mind and you don't realize it. Do you actually vet the people that come in? Because that's one thing a kingdom might do is they might have border people at the border control saying, no, wait, we don't want you in. Or yes, we want you in, but we need you to pass these types of things or to tell us what you're all about, so on and so forth. And you examine them. And maybe that's one way you can you can be a, a kingdom. But the point is that it, your mind can be like a kingdom if you think about it. Mind and kingdom are two different entities, a mind and a kingdom. You can see them as similar, make integrations, and learn something about the mind from that. 
and what control and maybe some things you don't have control over the more you think about. It. That's what thinking is. That's, that's one example of thinking. Is integration. Is making comparisons. Um, Holden Caulfield doesn't do anything like that ever. It's, he never t- does that kind of thinking. It's always, I hate this. This leads me, you know, this, I can't believe they did this. They're so phony. I don't like it when they do this. I hate that. I hate that. It's all about emotive, emotional thinking about what he likes and doesn't like or what he hates really and why he hates it and why, or not even why he hates it in a deep level, but just on a um, superficial level. Okay. So staying on the Holden effect idea, I wanted to bring up a movie and why I got the idea of the conspiracy theorist, the conspiracy theorist mind of today is a clear um you can you can mark a trajectory from this book and books like it ulysses gertrud stein books but all the kind of stream of consciousness books that we get and, and many modern books that are plotless and the they the narrator uh lacks rigorous intellectual um you know li- rigorous connections i mean just to give you a simple example from ancient ancient um literature from the iliad there's a moment when Glaucus, who's a Trojan warrior, approaches Diomedes, a Greek warrior, as Diomedes is going on, has been going on this rampage and killing Trojans. And these are two enemies. The Greeks have come there to kill the Trojans and sack the town because the uh, Trojan Paris stole Men- uh, Menelaus's wife, Helen, and so now they're at war. And this is Homer's Iliad written thousands of years ago. And Glaucus and uh, Diomedes, they meet and they tell each other's story, which is something that they tell each other their own individual story. So Glaucus tells his story of his lineage to Diomedes. Diomedes tells his story of lineage to Glaucus. And this is a, a common thing for a variety of reasons, which we won't get into about Greek culture. But they do this. And they find out that they are, in, in a sense, guest hosts to each other, that several you know, generations back, they had been kind to each other as a families, and so they kind of owed each other something because their great grandfather had done something great for the or helpful for their other great grandfather. So they decide to um, give each other gifts, and to, and they decide that there are plenty of Trojans that Diomedes can kill. There are plenty of Greeks that Trojan or that Glaucus can kill. So they decide not to kill each other, and they instead they exchange gifts, and they're going to go off and kill other other uh, enemies. So Glaucus gives his golden armor to Diomedes. Diomedes gives his bronze armor. And the narrator, Homer, has a comment in there. And he says, it was as though, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but it was as though the great god Zeus had baffled the mind of the Trojan Glaucus for giving up a set of armor worth 100 cows or 100 oxen in exchange for uh, a set of armor that is worth only nine oxen. So in other words, Glaucus gets a really terrible deal. And it's not even a deal, like it's a gift exchange among friends. So, he, But he just seemed to have lost his mind. He could have given one piece of that armor, or like a sword or a bow or anything else, other than something that's worth ten times as much as what Diomedes gives. Now, here's where integration comes in and we're thinking of about stuff like this matters. The next moment in the no, or in the poem 
the, the Iliad is Hector running into Troy to tell the Trojan women and to meet with people about um, praying to the goddess Athena to help them stave off Diomedes and, and the Greeks who are you know, rampaging through their army, through the Trojan army. And he's trying to do this. And one of the things we learn about um, Hector and the Trojans, and one of the things, you know, as they're kind of, this is early on in the, in the Iliad, one of the questions that pops up very clearly to us, or should pop up clearly to us, is why are they fighting this? Like, is it really just for Helen? So one woman, and they fight a 10-year war where towns are sacked, thousands of people are dying, the whole city is being, you know, destroyed. And Homer doesn't give a clear answer to that, I don't think, but I think my, my interpretation and other people's interpretation is that the Glaucus Diomedes, that kind of, you know, that they are the type of people, as a, as a Trojan people, that they would give something like, that their minds would be, be set aside them, you know, or that they would lose their minds in a sense and not be rational, logical in, in many of their, their things. Maybe they're over-romantic with this gold armor. They're trying, you know, it's like, oh, we have a gift, gift friendship. Someone more practical would be, you know, we're at war. I'm going to give you like a little stone as just a token. But these Trojans, they're the type of people who make these grand romantic gestures. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think are putting things together and trying to figure out meaning. You don't find any of that in the uh, J.D. Salinger. And the whole point of why I described that Iliad thing is to give you an example of when you read J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, you don't see any of those kind of connections making that kind of sense where it's, you know, one event and another event and you contemplate those and think about their relation. It's all very random. I mean, people have um, assessed the story as a loss of innocence, that he's um, you know, wants to help people and he doesn't know how, and that's what leads to all of his insanity. But no, I I think that's very minimal. I mean, that is there, and we'll talk about it in a second, but it's more the method of thinking that he has, where he has no ability to stay on a line of thought and come up with solutions and, and um ways of experience or ways of organizing his actions to achieve his ends. That's not possible to hold in because of his mentality, of his psychology. So that leads me into conspiracy theory with uh, Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. This is a 1997 movie, which when I I was uh, 12 when this came out. And I liked it even then. And I I liked it again. it's It's an interesting, fun movie. It's nothing super deep, but the story is essentially about um, Jerry Fletcher, Mel, Mel Gibson, and Julia Roberts plays a character named Alice. I can't remember her last name. But Jerry Fletcher is this weird um, scatterbrained, like Holden Caulfield, scatterbrained taxi driver who believes that there are conspiracy everywhere. He reads the newspaper, cuts out things, and he believes that, um, you know, like an earthquake in, I'm just making, you know, this is, I don't remember all the details, but something like this, like an earthquake in Venezuela is actually testing grounds from NASA where they're testing a, a, a new weapon. And then when he sees that the president of the United States is going to Venezuela, he's saying, well, that he's predicting that the NASA is going to assassinate the president. That's why they were testing some, you know, new machine that can, from space can create an earthquake and kill the president. 
And he has all these conspiracy theories about everything, about Vietnam War was just a bet between two leaders that, um, you know, just JFK assassination and then all the, the main. And guess what his favorite book is and a book that he has to have all the time. It is The Catcher and the Rye. He must always, whenever he sees this, he has to buy it. And at his home, he has a whole series of that books. Not a series, just like tons of that book. Just the same book. And it makes him feel comfortable. And um, and he says like it makes him feel or- normal. But of course, it's very abnormal for him to do that. And um, he doesn't even particularly like the novel. Uh, when he's asked about it, he's like, not particularly, but he just has to have it. Now, I think the creators of conspiracy theory are trying to make a connection because there is a connection. Holden Caulfield and Jerry Fletcher think the same way in a lot of ways. And if you read them, not the particulars, but in the method of their thinking, it's very scatterbrained. It's very, you know, uh, they're constantly shouting and thinking random things that occur to them. Oh, look at this, look at this, look at this. You know, it's like extreme ADHD type thing. Um, it's it, They're all over the place. And, you know, I would argue that the Jerry Fletcher or the, the Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye and the Jerry Fletcher and the modern conspiracy theorists all have that in common. That's my integration. That's my thinking is it's their method of the, an inability to make deep connections or make any connections based on sufficient evidence and, and even knowing what stuff like that is. It's all whim based. and. In fact, in Conspiracy Theory with uh, Mel Gibson as Jerry Fletcher, he calls it gravy in the brain. And the connection is made of what causes that, which I think is something J.D. Salinger didn't really, or he kind of put, this is kind of in the novel, I don't want to say he didn't, but it, it didn't, not as clear as I think it is in Conspiracy Theory, is in Conspiracy Theory, he blames it essentially on modern media on movies and television in particular. This is the thing he, he you know, and, and it's described that way. And when there's literally, so it does, by the way, just I'm going to ruin a little bit of the plot. I won't tell you the whole plot of Conspiracy Theory. You know, go watch it. It's a fun movie, I think. Not, nothing, part, you know. The only thing that I think it's scary about it is that it romanticizes this conspiracy theorist with which what we're dealing with today it's very bizarre to think about, like this conspiracy, because he ends up being right, is the funny thing. I, I mean, the, the weird thing is that his conspiracies end up being, or many of them end up being correct, that there really are these kind of shadow agencies with secret helicopters rappling down in the, the middle of New York City and, and doing nefarious deeds and kidnapping people off the streets and setting up murders that are, are assassinating people and they're not really killing them. Right? I mean, this, this is um, the Alex Jones type person par excellence and yet it's real it's all real we we learn all these conspiracies so he um so that that's but that's basically the 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 story of conspiracy theory and it's heavily related to media to constant images in your head and it's described that way and and it's when he jerry fletcher is kidnapped by one of the shadow agencies they inject him with something and they call it gravy for the brain and the way that the movie shows it is that all of a sudden all these flashing images of cartoons, of movies, of TV. And this happens in other places where there's a relationship between the way that Jerry Fletcher thinks 
and media. That media, in a sense, and all of its chaos is creating that. And when we think about today with social media, with phones in our faces, we're, we're flipping through, here's a three-second clip, here's a 10-second clip, here's a 30-second clip, here's, here's a, an image with a, an emotion attached to it, here's another image with another emotion of something. And we have over and just like bombarding our minds. It is turning our minds into gravy. And that is the the horrible, horrible truth about our modern times. And the the way for you to learn about that, to see that what I'm saying is true, or disagree with me if you wanted to, of course, but is to read The Catcher on the Right, even though it's not going to give you the um, good feelings and you're going to say, yay, I just want to hug everything, everything's so wonderful. It's going to make you feel like crap. And though it's necessary to learn this really critical thing of that's what Jerry Fletcher feels. That's what conspiracy theorists feels. That's their world. You can never understand the world of a conspiracy theorist and the mentality, the worldview, the psychology of a, uh, of a conspiracy theorist unless you read Catcher in the Rye or the equivalent of it. That's the value of literature is it shows it to you. It shows you that philosophy. It shows you that worldview. And you can write you know, theorems on the whiteboard. You can create philosophical treatises all you want. You're never going to understand it without reading The Catcher in the Rye, period, or something of its equivalent. So that's my main tirade about The Catcher in the Rye that I think I haven't quite really, I haven't really read or seen anywhere else. Now, I'm not an expert on The Catcher of the Rye. I haven't read every criticism or by any stretch, so I could be wrong, but I am just saying I haven't seen that kind of criticism against it, is that it hijacks your brain and it shows you that kind of mentality. And it's pretty scary, in my view. So go read it for yourself. Now, I, I just I want to finish with a quicker thing. Um, I want to wrap up here because I did mention that I would talk about this briefly. The other side of this mentality that I think is in conspiracy theorists is the desire to or the the fantasy of helping people is how it's put in uh, um in in the catcher in the rye now this the motivation for this and I'll uh, I guess I'll read a little passage here for you and this also hopefully give you a little more of a sense for what I'm talking about in terms of the psychology as well but it Holden Caulfield hates everything but the one thing we start to learn that he kind of likes his kids, and he wants to help kids, but he doesn't know how he can do this. It seems like it's a moot, um, you know, impossible point and not going to happen for him, or, or you know, he's never going to be able to do anything with it. Um, and and by the way, th- this image—if you're look—if you're watching this on YouTube um, rather than listening to it—if you look at the cover of the Catcher in the Rye, that cover, that famous cover, is a carousel. So it, you know, it's a carousel. It's all red. It's got. A um, you know the pole sticking through the back of its neck and coming out its um, body, and in the background is the city, probably a city skyline, probably New York City. And um, you know, so most people categorize the theme of this as the theme of this novel as the loss of innocence. And I, I that's that's there. I'm not going to deny that, but I think that the theme is more the chaos that leads to the loss of innocence or the the chaotic inability of a 
a mind to make clear decisions for themselves. And it's not a formal theme. It's just, you know, my kind of off the top of my head. But he wants to help people. And this is where the title comes from, The Catcher in the Rye. And I'll, I'll kind of spoil this a little bit for you. This is on, in my version, um, which, uh, you know, I don't, this is a paperback version. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. It goes like this. Um, it wasn't as cold as it was the day before, but the sun still wasn't out and it wasn't too nice for walking. But there was one nice thing. This family that you could tell just came out of some church were walking right in front of me, a father, a mother, and a little kid about six years old. They looked sort of poor. They had The father had on, had on one of those pearl gray hats that poor guys wear a lot when they want to look sharp. He and his wife were just walking along, talking, not paying any attention to their kid. The kid was swell. He was walking in the street instead of on the sidewalk, but right next to the curb. He was making out like he was walking a very straight line, the way kids do. And the whole time he kept singing and humming. I got up closer so I could hear what he was singing. And he was singing that song, If a Body Catch a Body, Coming Through the Rye. He had a pretty little voice, too. He was just singing for the hell of it, you could tell. The cars zoomed by, brakes screeched all over the place. His parents paid no attention to him, and he kept on walking next to the curb and singing, If a Body Catch a Body, Coming Through the Rye. It made me feel better. It made me feel not so depressed anymore. I'm going to read a, a, just a little bit more because I want you to get a sense for something, but keep in mind that the catcher in the rye thing. So continuing. Broadway was mobbed and messy. It was Sunday and only about 12 o'clock, but it was mobbed anyway. Everybody was on their way to the movies, the Paramount or the Astor or the Strand or the Capitol or one of those crazy places. Everybody was all dressed up because it was Sunday. And that made it worse. But the worst part was that you could tell they all wanted to go to the movies. I couldn't stand looking at them. I can understand somebody going to the movies because there's nothing else to do. But when somebody really wants to go and even walks fast so as to get there quicker, then it depresses hell out of me. Especially if I see millions of people standing in one of those long, terrible lines all the way down the block, waiting with this terrific patience for seats and all. Boy, I couldn't get that goddamn Broadway fast enough. I was lucky. The first record store I went into had a copy of Little Shirley B. And he goes, and again, this is the random thoughts that go in his mind. He's thinking about one thing and then another thing. And he goes on about this record all of a sudden. Now, this record doesn't come out of nowhere. He thought about it earlier. So again, his mind kind of is all conjobulated uh, or discombobulated. Now, that catcher in the rye... Uh, let me find the other thing real quick. Well, that's good. So that the catcher in the rye, as he puts it, is a actually he finds out from his sister is a misinterpretation uh, or misreading, misremembering of a Robert Burns poem called um, "Coming Through the Rye," and he has always thought of it as. Um, Gonna body meet a body coming through the rye. He thinks of it as come a, or gonna body catch a body, and so he he has this vision that he describes at um, a later point in the novel that of all these little kids in a field of rye, you know, picture like big wheat field, and they're running like lemmings essentially to a cliff, and it's up to him to catch all of them, and that's what he sees, and this seems to be the only 
positive vision he has is that he has to catch and you know all these kids who are leaping to their death. And we learn, you saw in that scene that I read to you, that he thinks kids are swell. And one of the reasons he thinks this is because they're not phony. This is something we hear a lot in the on the or the the book is that he hates the phoniness of adults. He thinks that everything they do is phony, you know, and you saw this with the movies where they want to go there and that makes them phony. So the desire for some reason, he's, he connects these adult desires with phoniness, but these, the random, you know, um, feelings of a child is not phoniness and he doesn't know how to make any kind of sense. And I don't think he ever does, but the catcher in the rye thing is, it's, you know, there is no catcher in the rye uh, pl- uh, poem. It's, again, coming through the rye. And this is a poem by um, Robert Burns, which is heavily in the, um, uh, trying to think, is it Irish or Scottish? I think it's, what is, give me one second. Yeah, it's Scottish. And it has a very strong Scottish dialect. And he's a Scottish uh, romantic, by the way. So anyway, he, um, you know, this, this Scott has, um, Scottish person Robert Burns has this poem, Coming Through the Rye, which is actually, once you translate the dialect, it's actually about a young woman, Jenny, who's got a wet, poor body as, she's, as she drags her petticoat, so she's naked, coming through the rye. And she's, again, it's stressed that she has this wet body and that, you know, if a body meet a body coming through the rye, if a body kiss a body, need a body cry. Oh, Jenny's a wet, etc. That's the um, you know my interpretation of one of the lines of it. It's about sex. It's about and he's asking a question. Even though it's a kids' song, it's actually about sex. And he's actually asking, is casual sex an okay thing? And why why shouldn't it be? Basically, but anyway, um, Holden Caulfield of Catcher in the Rye fame has misinterpreted this, and he sees it as his duty or his his goal in life to catch these little kids. And, you know, he's, that's how he visualizes it. And, you know, so there's, there's kind of a, that's, that's, I guess what a deep underneath him maybe motivates him a little bit is this desire to save people. And I do think there, you know, this is a little bit more what other critics focus on. I think that's important. I don't think it's the most important thing as they seem to, but it is an interesting thought that you get these conspiracy theorists who are, you know, focused on, well, they're going to save us from, you know, Biden. Right? That's what Trump's going to do. Or you're going to save us from the pedos, the pedophiles. And it's, I do think there's this weird, like, they're extremely um, focused and, and like, I got to get this across to everybody because otherwise they're all doomed if they don't understand the truth of what I'm telling them. I think there's a little bit of that. It's not as strong as what I was arguing before about the hijacking of the mind and the stream of consciousness and the discombobulated method of thinking or the juxtaposition. But it is there, and it's definitely in Catcher in the Rye where that is a motivation for him at the end of the novel because it just ends because it ends. You know, it doesn't really have to end there, but it ends with essentially he he takes his sister to a carousel and he watches her and I guess there's some kind of revelation that he has to let them live their lives. He can't, you know, be afraid for them all the time. Whatever. I don't think that's that big of a a, a concern, but it's there. So that is the catcher in the rye. Obviously there's, there's kind of more to it, but the only thing to learn about it is the 
so you can see for yourself the kind of way that it hijacks your brain or it can hijack your brain and how terrifying it is to to enter into the mind of this um, person who has a you know juxtaposition as their main method of thinking. All right, thank you, and I will see you next time.